You know, I've been thinking about the intro a lot lately, you guys. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but something I think about from time to time. Okay. Okay. Uh, you know, because we, we, we like to do the, the banter. You know, we kind of like to do some table setting, really paint a vibe. Uh, but I feel like we could be get – Dustin, you're incredible at it. Uh, it, it really is great. I, I feel like uh, I've been trying to figure out what our vibe is, I guess. Uh, and you kind of, uh, you know, we, we play around on the show, uh, about how you're always going to quit, but we love doing this together. We check in with each other all the time. I do like the bit that you're a newscaster with a gun to your head, uh, when you do the introduction. And that's, that's what I've kind of come up with. Uh, you know, we always, we always let the mood kind of dictate what our cold open's going to be like, but I've been trying to figure out how to articulate what our, our general intro is. And I, I think that's it. Uh, and I feel like that applies to this film because there's just a lot of times in this movie people uh, uh, behave in a life or death manner uh, over things that are not <laughs> not life or death. That yeah. I don't eat poor people bagels. Oh <laughs> uh, boy! boy howdy. Oh boy! Poor howdy! People bagels. Oh, yeah, man. there's a lot to talk about in this movie. Yeah. Uh, I was also trying to do like, uh, uh, let's really try our best to, uh, talk to each other like we, uh, smell our own farts, uh, in this episode. I think, <laughs> I think we owe it to, uh, Mr. Sorkin, uh, to do our best to really enjoy the English language today. Well, I actually am carrying my laptop with a, uh, air card installed and I'm walking in honor of the walk and talk that we did not have much of in this film. <laughs> Oh my god. You know what? Yeah, real walk and talk light. It's almost like he's trying to prove a point. <laughs> I was like, I don't have to do a walk and talk. I'm like, yeah, you'd... it would have been good with some, I think, actually. Maybe. Maybe I you should have. I wouldn't one or two. Yeah, a lot of sit and talks in this one. Um, I don't know. I kind of like it, although that's uh, – we'll, we'll talk more about that in a second. Yeah, uh, oh and hey. this absolutely does mirror a structure of one of the West Wing episodes, and we are going to talk about that. Well, Dustin, what are we talking about this week? Oh, hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Honorcast. We gather on a table, and we discuss the films you'll never discuss a film today's course. Please put your pistol away, and we are going to talk about <laughs> Molly's game. Uh, we are, indeed, gathered around tables uh, in separation, in quarantine right now, uh, to discuss the film Molly's Game. I am still Dustin. I am still Arthur. And who could I be but Dalton? And uh, so if you're tuning into the show for the very, very first time, though, this is what you need to know about uh, what we do here. We do analysis and not review. And that means, well, I say analysis and not review, not just review, because we do do, do review for just a moment. And uh, <laughs> he, did, he, say, he said it, Arthur. <laughs> he did it. <laughs> oh, yes, we do do. Is that what you're going for? You yep. can't control me, Aaron Sorkin. You can't make me act like I'm smart. <laughs> it is our duty to tell you at this point, though. Man, there. <laughs> you did it again. <laughs> <laughs> to tell right, you that I'm there sorry. will be some spoilers, but we're going to avoid them in the first part of the show. The first part of the show, there's synopsis, there's thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. That's all very, very spoiler light. And then uh, once we uh, get down to business, uh, we'll do it in two stages. We'll expand the syllabus, which will be vaguely spoilery, and then we will really, really get down to analysis. And that's when all spoiler bets are off, and we're going to find out what happened to Molly. So uh, there's what's going to happen in the next few minutes as you listen with us here at the Good Trash Media Network. So, without any further ado, Arthur Gordon, can we hear a synopsis of Molly's Game, please? In the long-awaited sequel to Gerald's Game, one woman... <laughs> no! 
you brought back the voice and I was wondering what was going on and I learned so quickly. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, wrong notes. After Olympic hopeful Molly Bloom suffers a career-ending injury, she opts to move to L.A. and take time off before law school. While in L.A., she gets a job working for a real estate developer named Dean Keith. Dean soon puts Molly in charge of organizing weekly high-stakes celebrity poker games at the Cobra Lounge. Molly's life begins to change, and she gets used to a certain luxury, but Dean threatens to take it all away. So, Molly decides to move the game and cut out the middleman. Based on the 2014 memoir, Molly's Game marks lauded screenwriter Aaron Sorkin's directorial debut, earning an Academy Award nomination for adapted screenplay and bringing in nearly $60 million on a $30 million budget. All right. Well, I mean, I did not know it was that profitable, honestly. I didn't know. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would have – yeah, I would have expected it to – I mean, that's not great. Uh, I think it – I think it broke even in the states, and then the rest of it came from the world uh, worldwide ah. distribution. Yeah. I think it was like twenty eight to thirty million here in the states, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. That makes sense. There's some big draws in this movie. Uh, yeah, I know. mean it's a it's a Christmas Oscar bait movie, so I mean I think it performed about how you'd expect with with what it's about. You got Chastain, you got Idris Elba, you got the Michael Saras, you've got you know a Sorkin screenplay. He's directing for the first time. Like there are reasons for curiosity. One sure. might seek out this film, I suppose. Yes, definitely. So, all right, well, let's talk about this film in review. And uh, I, I, I'll be curious how we can avoid analysis as we do our review bits, but we'll see what happens. Uh, what do we think, do we like or not like Molly's Game? I want to go to you, Arthur, first. I'll keep it tight. I'll keep it right. I think it is very well cast. I think Chastain and Elba are fantastic here. Um, just playing off of each other. I think they handle that rat-a-tat, uh, machine gun dialogue that Sorkin is so known for in a very, uh, even-keeled manner. And I think they land what they need to land and Chastain just eats that narration up. And I, you know, I, I was kind of listening to some different reviews about the narration and, you, you know, whether it was necessary or if it's too much show and not enough, you know, uh, or too much tell and not enough show. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I think, you know, this, the thing about the whole movie for myself is I think it's very slick. I think it's very pretty. Um, but I just, I don't know that there's a lot of, lot of substance there. I think it's really trying too many things. I, I, I think the first half is a lot stronger than the back part. I, I think the where the third act goes, especially with Costner, uh, is is a hard left turn. Uh, but I, I think Sorkin's doing some things right. I, I said this in the chat, and I think this is what really boils down to is this is what this is pretty much everything you'd expect from a movie directed by Aaron Sorkin, working from Aaron Sorkin material. Um, it, it has those trademarks, a lot of them. You know, we don't have the walk and talks, but we do have that dialogue and that very intelligent, prosy. Uh, dialogue coming from these characters who are supposed to be human um but i don't know i think it may be a bit too unfiltered a bit too off the off the leash um the the editing uh, i i do like for the most part i'm gonna kind of get in this when i get to my syllabus um but uh for the most part i like the editing i like that slick stylish editing it's part of the whole you know part and parcel with the movie but when there's uh a moment probably about the two-thirds mark or so uh, and there involves uh, Molly and a mob guy, gangster, or something. 
Uh, and the editing takes a real weird turn there. It really gets a lot of slow motion stuff. And it just doesn't fit what we've been seeing, I don't think. And I don't think it works uh, to the effect that you would hope it would work. I, I think it's definitely there to emphasize the dr- dramatic moment uh, playing out. But I, I think it kind of maybe leads a little too much into melodrama or something that just doesn't sit right with, I think, everything else kind of going on around it. Uh, but at the end of the day, I, I, you know, I think it looks great. I, I think Chastain steals the show and I, I echo a lot of the reviews I read, you know, the ones that were praising this movie really, I think were praising Chastain, uh, carrying this movie. And I think that's what it comes down to. I think Chastain is just doing the lion's share of work here. And because she is good, it elevates what, what we have on screen. And that's, that's where I'm coming from. I, I wasn't as impressed as I was hoping to be. Uh, I think it has some good ideas. Um, but at the end of the day, I pretty forgettable for me. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What do you say, Dalton? Do you like Molly's game? Well, Dustin, it's funny. You said, uh, you, you were wondering how much we'll be able to avoid analysis as we do review. Uh, cause yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking about it. This is a hard one uh, to do that on because uh, whether you uh, you know subscribe much to tour theory or not, when uh, somebody that's had a storied a career uh, as Aaron Sorkin directs their first film, it's it is hard not to think about that sort of stuff. Right. Are we in a weird background, Tom? Nope. Okay, never mind. <clears throat> uh, yeah, it, it, it's uh, it's a strange thing though to to try and and parse that out. Uh, Especially more so when uh, a guy who has been kind of famous for uh, struggling with his female characters chooses to uh, make a female-centered story for his directorial debut. It's it's hard not to start thinking about all these things and how they all fit together. Uh, Arthur has already uh, really, I, I think, done a great job of kind of encapsulating uh, what's going on in this screenplay as far as y- – you were very uh, diplomatic of- – about it, I feel like Arthur, but there is a certain amount of everybody sounding like Aaron Sorkin, uh, and I understand where that comes from. You know, he loves that old timey Hollywood dialogue that has musicality to it. I, I you know, he talks about it in interviews, but uh, I, I get that. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, I love that about film too, but there does, at certain points, feel something a bit mannered about it, uh, especially when, uh, and and I can't believe uh, I, I'm about to and somewhat good faith use the phrase virtue signaling i can't i never imagined it it would happen to me uh but there are moments in this film where it does feel like aaron sorkin is trying to do something along the lines of hey see look i promise i'm i'm a good ally uh and i get it like that that is a difficult spot to be in i think uh for a a creator uh, but it, it just uh, there are moments that don't really sit right with me and it did kind of end up coloring a lot of the movie for me that said I, I am with Arthur. It is a, it's a rip for a good time at the movies. What do you want? Look, I, I, I'm an easy, uh, buy-in for your films. Uh, if you entertain me even in the slightest, if you tickle my brainstem, uh, yeah, like if you give me something to chew on and think about, uh, I'm always going to be on board, uh, with what you're doing, even if it doesn't totally work for me. And th- there is enough here to like, uh, that it's hard not to be won over for large stretches. Uh, we, we talked, uh, Arthur already, I should say, has talked about Jessica Chastain. I gotta agree. Uh, I'm on the record on this show of being very critical of voiceover work. Uh, and yeah, I mean, she knocks out of the park. She, she handles it, uh, with plomp, but we, we knew that, you know, if you've seen Tree of Life, 
you know she can she can just uh, carry narration. Uh, it's it's a great strength of hers. Uh, Idrisel was great. Apparently, they had very little time to work together on this. Uh, I guess uh, he had other stuff going on, so uh, tight shoot schedule. So I guess they were just uh, rehearsing uh, off camera, uh, doing setups, and they had some like very light uh, pre rehearsal uh, over the the internet. So. Uh, yeah, they're, they come together, as Arthur said, with great chemistry, uh, and they really do handle that dialogue great. Uh, we haven't talked much about Michael Sarah though, and, and I do want to mention him because I feel like he kind of does underline one of the great strengths of the movie and, and something that I think we should credit Sorkin for and something we'll definitely talk more about when we get to analysis. Uh, Sorkin does seem to appreciate uh, how miserable being a woman in this world is because he does go out of his way in some regards, I think, to make you understand uh, how insufferable these rich dudes are. Uh, and I, I appreciate that about the film. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate that sort of, uh, class awareness, even though there, there's aspects of this film that very much feel out of, uh, Sorkin's, uh, West Wing fantasy days about how the world works. Um, but there is a, a certain clear eyed realism to, to this film that, uh, I think some of his other stuff, uh, lacks. Uh, and maybe that is a sign of, of somebody maturing, uh, and growing as, as a, as a creator. Whoop. That's what, uh, speaking of growing and learning, time to make sure my phone's on silent. Sorry about that, y'all. Um, yeah, I, I like the film well enough, I guess, to say. And maybe we can leave it at that uh, till we get into analysis and kind of crack this open further. Uh, but to put a pin in it, speaking of uh, uh, those male characters to wrap around, Michael Sarah, uh, Ar- Arthur, you m- mentioned in the chat uh, how much he was enjoying Michael Sarah, And when I finally caught up with him and watched the film, I was, yeah, I was right there with you, man. This is a, a truly great performance from him. Uh, and, and I think does really do a great job of uh, being a bedrock for one of the key themes of this film. And uh, I'm excited when we get to analysis. I think we're going to get some heavy lifting done tonight. Uh, Dustin, what about you, man? Uh, you, you like this one? I know you are a, a Sorkin fan. Uh, did he show his pork sword too much? Is Aaron Sorkin's pork sword too much in this film? Uh, or, you know, was he a good boy? I am not going to address Aaron Sorkin's pork sword in any way, um, is what I would begin with. But I will say this. That, uh, the film itself is a lot of fun. Uh, I like Jessica Chastain, just like we've already said. I like Idris Elba a lot. Uh, Michael Sarah, when he finally shows up, is fantastic. And, uh, Kevin Costner, for crying out loud, is interesting as a choice in this film. And so there, there's a, there's a lot to appreciate, uh, in watching it. And I think the voiceover works just fine. I think the plot is sensible enough that you kind of get it. But the problem with the movie for me, is that it is playing with too many different thematic ideas. And it's too many different kinds of movie, which is a criticism I give a lot of uh, times. And, and I want to sort of clarify some of what I mean by that. So there's uh, one of the greatest movies of all time, according to BFI. It was the greatest movie of all time last time they had their poll. is 1958's Vertigo by Alfred Hitchcock. And in that film, what you have is a movie that's a psychosexual drama, so that's the genre, in which doubling and controlling of women results in madness, sadness, and despair. That's what the whole movie's about. It's got two different sort of halves, but both halves neatly fit together, and everything that goes on throughout the course of that film is all about bringing you into that spiral of despair uh, that is caused by, again, the sort of forced manicuring of women into doubling them. Now, that's a quick just kind of plot synopsis of uh, Vertigo without any kind of spoilers. This movie is playing with lots of stuff. It's playing with ideas of out-of-bounds lifestyles. It's playing with ideas of the fairness towards 
women in various modes of the workplace. It's talking about fame and celebrity. It's about addiction. It's about the mob. It's it's uh, about the legal system. It's the way in which uh, you know uh, certain kinds of laws are enforced and not enforced. It's, there's a lot of various kind of thematic things that are at work in this film. And it's not that you can't have a movie that juggles a few plates, but if you're going to be doing your plate juggling, you've got to juggle them all and juggle them very, very well. And I don't know if this movie does that. I, well, I think... Yeah, it's, it certainly doesn't do itself any favors by also having kind of the, the plot contrivances and structural issues it gives itself by, you know, doing this jumping around, uh, aren't, aren't we spinning so many plates thing? Like, I kind of understand the necessity for multiple timelines and vantage points on this story. Uh, you know, I, I'm not totally poo-pooing that choice, but, you know, the thematic uh, struggles you're talking about do kind of seem of an outgrowth of the fact that the, they, there's three editors on this movie, and you, it shows because they are kind of editing three different movies together. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's where my, you know, fundamental sort of, again, maybe it is an editing problem that I'm trying to criticize here. That, but it's, you uh, know, it's puzzle pieces on the story to some extent, right? Right. And, and there are puzzle pieces that fit together, but unlike, say, a masterpiece like Vertigo, there's no sort of cohesive and everything comes together in a way that is thematically, um, intellectually satisfying. Now, in terms of narrative, it does come together. It makes a lot of sense. Like, oh, okay, so we're going to get to this sort of, you know, random chance kind of thing, and uh, now you've had yet another random chance. Do what you want to do with your life, sort of. It kind of gets you to that. But it's also doing, and which is, you know, thematic connecting to poker as a game of not quite chance. There is a strong argument, you know, um, that poker is or is not a game of chance, and Jessica Chastain's got a couple lines about that in the film. Um, but, you know, poker is an honest way to make a living, but only fools buck the tigers. That's what I hear. Uh, that was, that was my Doc Holiday. Um, if you want to hear more of Dustin's Doc Holiday impression, you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash GTM and throw us some money to help keep the lights on and listen to us play Monster of the Week, which is a tabletop game. It's fun. We have a good time, and Dustin talks like that a lot. Uh, yes, because that is the, uh, the the voice of Titus T. Beauregard. I never um, <laughs> stop hustling. All right, I'm done. So, yeah, that's that's really kind of it for me, is that there are no pieces that I dislike. It's just, I don't like it together. Mm-hmm. It's, that's, I just, I, I, that I like, okay, but then it's something else. And I, I, and I feel like I've been making this criticism a lot lately, is I really do kind of demand a kind of cohesiveness uh, from a film. And uh, this one has just got too many hours in the fire, or perhaps too many editors in the bay. And uh, that's part of what's uh, broken in it for me. But otherwise, again, the, the dialogue itself, great. The good lines, yeah. Uh, characters that you love and that you hate, that are complicated, that are not just, you know, stock good or bad people. I, 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 yeah, I see all of that. Yeah, kind of there's thing. lots of great shades of gray. Uh, we got Bill Camp delivering a, an unsurprisingly fantastic supporting performance. Uh, yeah, there's, there's stuff to like. Uh, but I think it does seem like we are all kind of in agreement like we've been very nice we haven't talked about all the people who don't actually wear glasses doing things people who wear glasses would never do uh we didn't get to uh longing shots of jessica chastain touching legal books there's some goofy stuff in this movie 
but we mostly seem to be on its side. Uh, am I am I wrong? Uh, like yeah. we all are kind of a, it seems like a mixed bag for all of us, but we mostly seem to be on its side. We could be much more aggressive with it. I feel like. Yeah, it's 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 a you know as far as like a grade kind of movie, it's because I'm a generous grader, which I just finished and completed putting all my grades in, so this is why it's on my mind. When it's a basically, it's not a very good paper, but you did everything you were supposed to do the way you're supposed to do it, and the effort is clear. I almost always give that student a B, and that's why this is kind of a grade B movie, you know, which it probably is, yeah. You know, Straight it's probably, across the plate. Yeah, maybe maybe a low C would be a, a more objective way to grade it. But the way I feel about it, I'm I'm kind of in B territory. Yeah, it's got passion and voice and a point of view. Yeah, there's there's and again, lots of great performances. So yeah, it's a very good freshman comp paper. Well done, Aaron. Um, <laughs> that's <laughs> I mean, he's been making a career phrase. out of that for uh, decades, right? <laughs> so. Well, there you go, dear listener. Those are our buyers. You know, again, mixed bag, but generally pro. Let's do a thing, though. Let's do a thing that's fun. Let's teach a class using this film as a primary text. Uh, perhaps. It could be secondary text. And what additional texts would we use in order to uh, teach uh, this particular class? We get a name what the class is. We can name a subject, but field. It could be an economics class. It could be a biology class. It could be, uh, honestly, it could be a math class. And when you're talking about randomness and chance, I don't know if this is really all that mathy of a movie, but it could be. Uh, but whatever it is that you want to do, uh, my co-host, we have come up with a little bit of a part of a syllabus uh, that would use this film. So I'm going to go to you first, Dalton. What class are you teaching, and how are you using Molly's game, and what are you using with it? Well, Dustin, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I, I'm, I don't know quite what to call this class yet, or, or how to categorize it. As you mentioned, these classes can be about anything. Uh, and, you know, this could very easily just be a, a straight-across-the-plate uh, film studies class. Uh, but I don't know. I feel like we're dealing with a very specific subject matter here because it's going to be a class about films about gambling. Uh, and all films about gambling are also films about addiction by and large, uh, which I, I think is a fascinating trait. I, I think there's a lot of drug movies that aren't necessarily about addiction, even if addiction factors in. And I guess you could say of some of my picks, uh, the addiction to gambling doesn't really center in all of these films. Uh, but it certainly does in Molly's Game, uh, and, and I think within Molly's Game and within gambling movies at large, you you have the opportunity to not only examine human psychology uh, and uh, you know addiction uh, behaviors, uh, but also you have the opportunity to to look at uh, you know larger social issues uh, because all gambling films, at least the ones that are on this list uh, are, that are set in the United States do center on questions about uh, worth uh, and value uh, and uh, hunger uh, in the American dream, uh, these kind of very big, broad ideas. And I, I get it. It's, it's fertile ground for talking about stuff, and you, you, we could just call it a, a film studies class. Uh, but I don't know. I think there's potential here for something maybe uh, a, a little bit more specific than, than that necessarily. So we're going to be looking at a couple, uh, all from the last 20 years or so, uh, 25 years or so, uh, all films that I like quite a great deal. Um, Dustin, could you, uh, I'm so sorry. And Arthur, I'm sorry to make you make a note. Could you mute yourself potentially? Um, I don't think, yeah, thanks man. I think it'll be okay when we're cross talking. Uh, but yeah, you're, you've got a lot of white, white noise, uh, going on. Uh, I don't know what, what the deal is tonight. It's such a bummer. Anyway, um, 
So uh, we're going to be looking at uh, a couple, and I know uh, at least a few of these I know uh, both of you like quite a bit. Uh, so we're going to take Molly's game, and I think we should start there, honestly, because uh, the, the rest of these films are largely centered uh, around men. And, and I think starting with Molly's game, uh, and especially somebody who facilitates gambling more than being a gambler herself, although... I think you could argue that Molly Bloom is something of a gambler, and we'll probably talk about that later. Uh, but we're going to start there, I think, and then move on. Um, let's say uh, reverse chronological order just to have fun and immediately follow up with another big star vehicle. We will be watching Adam Sandler and the Safdie Brothers, uh, truly uh, uh, masterful uncut gems, just a damn wild ride. Uh, next, we're going to go back a few more years prior to that and check out uh, Mississippi Grind, which is a movie I like a lot. I don't know if either of you caught this, uh, but it's uh, Ben Mendelsohn and, and uh, you know, as we do get sometimes Ryan Reynolds, uh, not just, you know, doing the thing that people like it when he does. Uh, he's, he's good. He's very good in it. Uh, it's, it's uh, you know, kind of up there with, I would say, nines uh, and, uh, oh gosh, uh, a couple of his other... Uh, Oh, Voices, uh, a film we did here on the show a while back. Yeah, I, I'd say it's one of his better performances. Uh, but it is just a, a story of two dudes who team up to go on a road trip playing poker. Uh, you know, southern road trip movie. Uh, I'm a fan of it. Uh, it's uh, Anna Bowden and, and Ryan Fleck. Uh, y- you know their names. They did a Marvel movie. Uh, but it's, it's one they did shortly before uh, uh, getting that job. And I just I like it a lot, and I think there's a lot of fun stuff there. Uh, and as with all of these movies, you do get some really port- interesting portraits of, of human behavior uh, and, and shortcomings and, and flaws. And again, the psychology of people living on the edge. Dustin, you mentioned at the top of the show, one of the, or as you were kind of giving your review of Molly's Game, uh, or no, it was during the intro, but you, you mentioned uh, the idea of, I think, divergent lifestyles. I, I can't remember exactly how you phrased it, uh, but I'm, I'm glad that's something we're going to be talking about tonight. And I, I think maybe that's what this course is centered on because it is very much about people kind of living, uh, in the margins of acceptability and trying their damnedest, uh, t- to fit in a world that they can tell they don't really fit into, uh, which is where we, we come to finally, uh, hard eight, uh, the first film from Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, a film that I only recently caught up with. I, I've been putting, uh, putting off for a long time and man, I'm real glad I caught up with it. Uh, it's good stuff. Also, obviously, uh, you know, any chance I get to see more Philip Baker Hall uh, in a leading capacity, you know, I want that. Uh, I like the guy a lot, and I haven't seen quite enough of his work, but uh, really great early John C. Riley, and you know what? Somebody I'm not always nice to. Really good Gwyneth Paltrow, um, and Sam Jackson also there. Uh, kind of uh, the the most. Uh, antagonist, the closest thing to an antagonist this film has, although I, I don't know that it's entirely that kind of movie. Uh, but yeah, really great stuff. Another uh, companionship and gambling film, kind of gambling as a, a weird uh, social glue. Uh, but uh, very much a mentor-mentee film uh, with Philip Baker Hall role of Sydney, uh, which is uh, some places, I, th- I think, uh, I don't remember where, some places they called Heart 8 Sydney, or it might have been on its uh, festival release. Um, but again, Sydney, uh, being the lead, uh, tootling, uh, to- tutelizing, well, words are fun, uh, teaching John C. Riley's character, John, uh, the road and teaching him how to gamble, uh, in a way that's not too dangerous and is consistent, uh, and masterable, uh, and how egos and personalities, uh, and hurt feelings all kind of eventually rub up to each other and, uh, remind you that when money's involved, things always get weird. 
Uh, and that's where we'll leave it. It's only a five movie class. So again, it does feel like we maybe have room to do some other stuff here. Uh, but uh, a, a class that I think is going to be very exciting. Uh, you could easily add more movies in here. There's tons of pictures about gambling. Uh, but these five recent ones from the last couple of decades, uh, I just think all have really, really interesting things, including Molly's Game, uh, to say about people and, and to say about the nature of gambling. Very good. Very good, Dalton. I think our classes will end up hooking and eyeing well together. But before we get to that, let's hear what Arthur has to say. Arthur, what class are you teaching and what auxiliary appendices would you add to Molly's game? Yeah, like I alluded to in the uh, my review, uh, I, I was really taken, you know, kind of that stylish, slick editing style, uh, some of those kind of uh, diegetic or non-diegetic overlays uh, when they're spelling out the poker games, things that kind of really keep your attention uh, in a movie that is this kind of focused on giving you a lot of information that's not super, you know, necessarily entertain interesting. Uh, and so they find ways to kind of spice it up uh, through the uh, narration and, and through the editing and some other techniques uh, that come into play. And it really got me thinking uh, about what is surprisingly uh, one of the more influential movies of the 2010s. Um, and so I, I'm calling this one Flash and Circumstance, uh, the quick impact of the big short and the big screen expose. Ooh, Arthur, yeah. this Bud, I, you're hit on the, hitting on the, head, the nail on the head with this one. Yeah, a weirdly influential movie. Yeah, uh, and I really, I picked up on it when we saw Bombshell back in December, November. I don't, time is a construct. Um, but, uh, <laughs> uh Bombshell. Uh, yes. uh, Bombshell, the press screening you took me to and then I embarrassed you at. I remember that one. Yep, we try to forget them. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> it, that's where I really kind of picked up on that idea that, uh, the big short was a lot more, uh, influential, uh, than, than I gave it credit for. I, I think, um, it really tapped into something uh, interesting in the way it presented material. And I, I think for the core reading of this class, I'm, I'm definitely, obviously, it's the big short, uh, Adam McKay, 2015, but also Goodfellas, um, Martin Scorsese, 1990, because I think Goodfellow, Goodfellows also kind of sets that groundwork for what's happening in the big short as far as narration goes. Um, obviously, I think the kind of quick editing type stuff that it's taking place in the big short and some of these other movies I'm going to mention uh, comes later. But I think just that kind of meta approach of having the characters narrate what's going on um, and addressing the audience directly. A lot of that feels like it's picked up from, from Goodfellas. And so I think that's the Ur text. And also it fits into that expose theme of taking this real life story of a, you know, informant, and putting it on the big screen and kind of all of the romanticization, I think that does kind of take place at points with, with telling that story. Um, not necessarily, you know, the treatment of characters, but I think just in telling that story, um, it's, it's a fun movie. And so I'm starting with Goodfellas, uh, as the kind of ur text alongside the big short. Uh, and then from there, I want to move into, I believe it was 2017, uh, 2018. That's Craig Gillespie's I Tanya, uh, which is doing a lot of the same kind of, Meta, Talking Heads, faux documentary, uh, very break the fourth wall style of narration that we see in uh, both Big Short and Goodfellas. Um, 
and is kind of using a, a stat cast uh, to do so. Uh, we got Margot Robbie, obviously, again, uh, kind of carrying over. Um, and then from there, I want to go back to Adam McKay, and we're going to talk about Vice, uh, which is kind of doing a lot of the same thing, uh, but this time turning that light into a more political uh, angle and looking at Cheney, um, but again, kind of using a ensemble cast, kind of like what Dustin had mentioned a few weeks ago when we talked um, about that one movie, uh, Prisoners, about the kind of ensemble procedural. I think some of those same elements carry over here when you have these all-star casts, some of them in makeup, some of them gaining weight and what have you. But I, I think some of that is going back into what's happening in the big short where you have Brad Pitt putting on the beard and kind of changing his physical transformation a little bit um, and just kind of a, a, a cast backed by pretty big, you know, supporting names or a lot of those. Oh, I know that guy's uh, kind of filling in the blanks. And so I think Vice picks up with that as well. And then, as I mentioned, Bombshell is the other text, which feels very much like a a take on what's happening with the big short in the way it's presenting its material. Obviously, again, that Margot Robbie connection um, and then having a comedian uh, comedy director uh, kind of trying to take the helm on a more serious uh you know, substantial work and to whatever fault that occurs. But I, I think there's just a really interesting pattern here of taking these exposés of real life people um, with stories that have a lot of dense information and especially the big short. And I think the big short does a great job of uh, digesting it and regurgitating it to the audience in such a way through the help of these vignettes with celebrities so that it is very understandable because there's a lot of terminology and phrasing and knowledge that if you're not from an economics or political background or your business background, you're not going to pick up. And I think the big short really masters that. And that's where some of these other films, I think, fumble the ball pretty heavily. Um, and so this idea though, of taking these kind of complex uh, stories or very information heavy stories that span multiple years in some instances and then condensing them into such a pop digestible uh, iPhone, you know, carrying wave so that it's rat-a-tat-tat editing uh, it presents the information. Um, and it's all around exposés. And I think that there's just some interesting components there to unpack and unlock. And so that's where I would go with this course. Ooh, I love that, man. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Bombshell because I think we might talk about it a little bit more when we get to analysis. But uh, that sounds like a, a very interesting uh, web you've laid out. Well, thank you. Yeah, very cool, very cool, Arthur. Um, I would be into that class. So my idea kind of pairs a little bit with Dalton's idea as he's talking about gambling and gambling addiction films. I'm talking about movies mm. about the hustle about uh, ways in which uh, gainful employment is found outside the bounds of the rules, right? And so uh, the first movie I thought about when I was watching this was a movie that's more fun, that's also... And, and Molly's Game kind of provides sort of an anomaly here insofar as, yes, it is sort of outside the rules. She's running an illegal poker game and all that kind of stuff. But it's 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 less about the con there than the rest of these movies tend to be. Uh, because the first film that I thought about mm -hmm. was uh, Catch Me If You Can. Uh, mm -hmm. Leonardo DiCaprio. It's a, it's a fun movie. 
and, and mostly for the, I think honestly, it's for the sort of saccharine sweetness of just sucked into a Steven Spielberg produced film and, uh, helping, uh, my students sort of get introduced to the idea, um, of what we're trying to do there. Uh, then the next movie I'd want to show though is The Lady Eve from 1941. Um, and it's a cruise ship story. Uh, Henry Fonda plays a really uh, good-looking millionaire, and uh, they're trying to figure out ways to swindle him out of his money. Uh, one of the grifters in the film is Barbara Stanwyck, uh, who you might remember from Double Indemnity. Uh, and she does successfully seduce Fonda, but falls in love with him in the process. So I think there's some interesting discussions of gender and just those kinds of notions uh, at work there. Uh, in that film, um, then I would want to move into uh, Tangerine, oh, yeah. uh, which is Sean Baker's Tangerine, which is a movie about prostitutes, sex workers, and uh, not only sex workers but transsexual sex workers, and uh, that is uh, got a lot more layers of what's going on in terms of gender, in terms of just uh, sexuality, and in terms of how a person is able to sort of negotiate. Uh, the financial climate of the world in which uh, they're not naturally by uh, default or entitlement uh, or by privilege empowered. And so I think that would be really interesting as well. I had one more movie and my brain is sort of not working. Give me just a second. I'm going to give up or I'm going to go. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, uh, speaking of Margot Robbie, uh, once focus. again, we, we, did we can't stop bringing her up. Yeah, that movie is, yeah. uh, uh, is good. It's man. What I would kill. Oh, guys. I would love to go watch a $40 million adult dramedy in a motion picture house right now. Ugh. Yeah. To dream. Yeah. I miss them. Uh, we, I, I miss going to the movies, but I miss just, yeah, movies of that size and caliber. It's good shit. Yep, for sure. For sure, for sure. So anyway, the syllabus, uh, again, thinking about these sort of how do you make a living on the edges? Uh, you know, I thought about one of the Fast and Furious movies, but I think they're too much of action films, uh, for what I really want to do there. But that's, you know, kind of generally where everybody always hustling, uh, as a class, uh, in film studies. So, uh, there you go, dear listener. Your uh, syllabus just got a bit longer. I think, though, it's now time to get down to business. And as always, that business is analysis, and there are things to analyze. In this film. Gee, aren't there? Oh, gosh. Where do we start? Should we start with the man himself, Aaron Sorkin? Yeah, let's, we let's could, get yes. that old rascal in here. <laughs> yeah, he's here right now, joining us live via Zencaster. He's in the studio. I hope you can keep uh, up with him. Thank you very much for having me on the show today. Uh, <laughs> hey, you know what? That was a pretty good Sorkin for about three and a half seconds. Uh, yeah, he he sure is a he sure is one, huh? Uh, we uh, if there ever there was somebody that grew up uh, in Scarsdale and went to Syracuse, it is Aaron Sorkin, uh, and I say that with with love in my heart. I truly do because uh, I like the guy more or less, but. He, Kind of a knucklehead, huh? Yeah. And, and, well, I mean, one of the things he does is he does get a bit formulaic. And this film, I think part of its problem is I've seen this movie before and it works okay in a 45 minute television episode. But the way in which they're telling a story forward with these flashbacks, uh, you can do that in a two and a half hour movie. You certainly can. 
but he's doing it like uh, the first uh, episode of season two of The West Wing, uh, where Josh Lyman's been shot and uh, is in uh, the emergency room. I, I, Dalton, I know, has seen this. I don't mm, know if you have or not, Arthur. But the whole time, he's sort of going backwards and remembering how each of the individual members of the uh, the West Wing staff are brought on to the campaign and the way in which the campaign was won and Bartlett was elected, played by Martin Sheen, was elected president. Well, and it's not entirely dissimilar to the structure also of The Social Network, uh, you know, which he wrote for uh, Fincher. Uh, it is, you're right, Dustin. It's weird to see uh, this pattern kind of firmly emerge, right? Because in the social network, much like Molly's game, you simultaneously are charting the rise and fall uh, in parallel, right? You've, you've got the uh, call to adventure and the dark night of the soul happening in tandem with each other. And it's all very fun and dramatic. Molly's game also has like other flashbacks and cutaways that it needs to work on. Uh, and I, I can't remember. It's been a long damn time since I've seen the social network. So I, I don't want to bring that up too much for point of comparison but yeah it's at that episode of west wing also there is this um I, you know and i enjoy that kind of stuff right i like watchmen you know i i appreciate uh let's look at the the wishiness of time but it is weird to see that become kind of a rut almost yeah for sure i think it's interesting that he pivots so hard from these kind of political pieces in the 90s and early 2000s you know we see a few good men which we talked about a long time ago on the show do love that um, movie really kind of wholeheartedly dived, yeah dived in there uh with rob reiner um we um look at you know american president with uh, michael douglas um and so on and so forth and then we kind of make this switch to those introspective type of character studies like the social network or molly's game but we also have Moneyball in there and we have steve mm. jobs in there uh, and they all feel pretty part and parcel of, of kind of the same that thematic thread. And if you were to get into, you know, auteur theory, uh, and Sorkin's kind of the interesting figure here since he is a writer. Um, and when his, you know, his themes really, I think, outweigh what we know of the director to do, I think that kind of, you know, again, throws an interesting wrench into auteur theory. Um but I think it really does kind of mark, uh, especially I think Steve Jobs. I think Steve Jobs is much more an Aaron Sorkin film than a Danny Boyle film. Um, but uh, it, it's curious to see how his style has evolved and where his uh, interests, I think, lie. We've obviously got a lot of those same hallmarks, the rat-a-tat dialogue, uh, the eleva elevated dialogue. Um, but to kind of move into these more focused pieces, and I say focused as kind of revolving around a central figure who's not in the political sphere so much. Yeah, um, it's it's kind of a loose trilogy. Uh, and sure, you could build it out to a social network, but I, I, I wouldn't because I feel like Molly's Game, Moneyball, and Steve Jobs are, are much more sympathetic to their, their leads. Uh, although social network could stand to drag Mark Zuckerberg quite a fair bit more. Uh, but he does seem to have a distaste for him, even if he kind of admires his shittiness. Uh, you're right though, these other three films are, yeah, very much even smaller than Social Network and much more intimate and complicated portrayals. Yeah, I, t I yeah. tend to agree. Yeah, we're, again, because we're all in quarantine and Zen casting here, we keep waiting for each other to come in. But yeah, uh, I, I, I think it, there, there is a sort of thematic thread. And, you know, they, sometimes they talk about a Schriebner theory, about a writer's theory. And that does sort of move into the question, though, because one of the things that one of you guys said was this movie looks like it was directed by Aaron Sorkin, even though we haven't seen an Aaron Sorkin directed thing. And I forget which one of you said it, 
but I wanted to know more about what you meant by that. Well, I think I said it, and I think Dalton may have said it in chat or seconded it in chat. I can't remember, but um, it's it's. I think part of it is because I think he's picking up on so many stylistic choices from the movies he's been involved with, with Fincher, with Boyle, with Bennett Miller, um, and kind of carrying over a lot of those different techniques that we've seen in those films. Uh, and he uses that to kind of match that rat-a-tat dialogue that he, he loves from, you know, guys like Billy Wilder. Uh, and so I, I, I feel like um, that uh, lends itself to him kind of cranking up you know, those, those things he's interested into about 11, you know, the kind of way he does handle, you know, female politics in this film, the, just the pure nature of his writing here. Um, and then kind of pulling pieces from all these other movies that we're familiar with, uh, in regards to the style of a Steve Jobs or the style of a social network, um, and kind of marrying it into this, almost Frankenstein monster of a Danny boy or of a Aaron Sorkin movie. Um, I, I think there's a, because of how touted his name is, uh, especially with those last few movies, not so much the social network. Um, but like Dalton said, that other trilogy, um, there are a lot of people who I think would, you know, attribute those movies to being Aaron Sorkin films, even if they're not, you know, I mean, they're Bennett Miller and Danny Boyle aren't nobodies. Um, Correct. <laughs> yeah. Filmmaking. Yeah. And so, um, I think it's interesting that his name outweighs their names in a lot of conversations about those movies. Um, yeah. and I think it is that familiarity with him and connecting that dot that, oh, Steve Jobs was an Aaron Sorkin movie. Oh, Moneyball's an Aaron Sorkin movie. Um, it kind of, there's a mental connection there, I think. So when you're watching those movies, you're like, oh, I, I like what Sorkin's doing with this. And, and you kind of see all that glued together here uh, for better or worse, I think. And I, I think that's kind of what it is. I, I think it's him pulling in all of these elements from everything else he's been a part of and collaborated on um, kind of coming together and, and being something recognizable in style to these other projects we've seen him in. I agree. I agree. Uh, what are you going to say, Dalton? Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with no, I, I'm just also agreeing with Arthur. Yeah, uh, I, I'm right there with you. And Danny Boyle, again, is weird to see him crowded out of a movie because he does kind of tend to be specific. And I think he's got some really cool flourishes within Steve Jobs. But yeah, I, it's so frustrating, though, because that film, I kind of like the very stage play-esque structure of that movie. Um, and, and I know that, that, that uh, people's mileage may vary on that kind of structure in a film, but I really do like the kind of three-act uh, or four, three- or four-act vignette type thing that's going on there. Um, speaking to that, though, we, we are been circling that all of these are true stories, uh, and this was not always the case with Aaron Sorkin, right? Um, you know, The West Wing, A Few Good Men, these are, are, are very much, you know, also uh, very uh, fetishistic about lawyers and the law, much like these other works. Uh, but they're not based on true stories. They are kind of allowed to exist in a moral fantasy worlds uh, that he has constructed. Uh, it, it's interesting to see this latter part of his career be so centered around uh, adapting true stories to the screen. Uh, you know, and it, it's I'm curious where that comes from. I'm sure he's probably spoken to it in interviews he has to have because it is such a specific choice. Uh, or maybe it is just what projects are getting greenlighted right now. Uh, but it's, it's interesting to see him take his, his very specific 
uh, Clinton era uh, neoliberalism uh, and continually try to put that that framework and structure and I, I shouldn't even just frame it around neoliberalism because that's honestly a little too specific for what I think it is because there's also a certain amount of I, I, I don't need, it is an idealism you don't typically associate with a, a boomer Gen X cusper like Aaron Sorkin. Uh, it, it does really appreciate, you know, exceptionalism, uh, and drive and purpose in people, uh, in, in a way that makes sense for a guy that has been so successful, I guess. Uh, you know, it is that, it's, I wouldn't go as far as to call it bootstrappy, but it's not far from it. And it is just so interesting, again, to, to see this be applied to these true stories. I don't really have anything further on that unless that sparks something in either two of you. Uh, I just thought it was worth talking about. I, I did want to address his sort of specific kind of liberalism because, you know, there are lots of ways in which this movie tries to be, you know, woke in various ways. And we'll maybe talk about some of them. But there's also, we'll get to him. There's also this sort of thing that is consistent within Sorkin that is uh, politically just tone deaf as well. It's just insensitive. And in a really kind of unaware kind of way that sort of sort of boldly blunders into it, right? And uh, the ways in which comparisons are made, the ways in which uh, sort of uh, corollaries and an- analogies are drawn uh, is one of the problems in this movie. So the, the uh, continual use of Arthur Miller's uh, The Crucible, uh, which ends up being some of the best last lines of the film are actually Arthur Miller's lines and not Aaron Sorkin's lines uh, coming out of the mouth of Jessica Chastain, uh, which is many great. Sorkinism, many Sorkinisms raise their head in this film. Uh, you don't need to have us enumerate them, though. You can watch one of those supercuts online. And uh, indeed, we're talking about a kind of unfair, not kind of, an absolutely unfair, unjust system of prosecution, right? And that what they're doing, though, is they're pressuring uh, Molly Bloom to testify because of what it can do for their case. It's not this sort of hysterical persecution, a la the, you know, the, the 1600 Salem witch trials themselves, as Daniel Hawthorne might talk about them in the 19th century, or in the early part of the 20th century, how we're framing what's going on with the, uh, the Red Scare and the McCarthy trials, and, uh, using the witch trials to sort of help you see that as well. It's not the same thing, and honestly, it's pretty tone deaf. Right, uh, which is interesting. Uh, oh, I'm no, sorry. That's it. Go, go, go ahead. ahead no, continue. no, that that was my point. Uh, oh, okay. Well, I was just gonna say it is interesting because you know Charlie, um, the Idris Elba character, who is very clearly an Aaron Sorkin stand-in, does kind of take Molly to task for her, her uh, very girl bossy white feminism. We'll kind of talk about the girl boss phenomenon later, I think. Uh, but you know, a lot of you know, complaints you could have about like, this is not a persecution thing. The government has leverage against somebody that could potentially help them uh, fight the mob. And obviously, as we come to learn throughout the film, she probably really doesn't, uh, at least according to, to Molly Bloom. It doesn't, and it, you know, based on the case that Sorkin makes for her, it doesn't seem like that that's the case. And it is unfair. Uh, but, you know, this is somebody uh, who the only reason she doesn't have a support system is she's on bad terms with her moneyed family, which is not a tragedy. We should be little. That's that's a hard spot for people to be in. Uh, that's a life people got to live. I, I have empathy. Uh, but, you know, Charlie does come in and, and challenge her a lot. And it is only through kind of proving by Charlie's metric of morality that she's a decent person that he finally decides he's going to help Molly out. And it is just sort of interesting 
that the film takes the time to call Molly's morals into question, but also does frame. I, I, I don't know. It, it's a strange having its cake and eating it too. That's going on, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but I am glad you mentioned the crucible stuff going on. Cause yeah, that's definitely worth mentioning. Yeah. I mean, certainly, um, is an unjust per- prosecution? Sure. But it's not, I mean, it's not the same kind of, you know, scarlet letter S to again, re reinvoke Hawthorne sort of, anachronistically but it's not the same kind of thing as the witch trials or as the mccarthy hearings it's just and it's trying to say okay we've got an unjust system where somebody sort of made some ill-gotten gain and they've lost that money and are now being double charged and they're sort of going broke and it's like oh how sad it is that this person's broke which is definitely sad but that's not the same thing as being uh it's not the, it's the same level of ruin is what i'm trying to say and uh, just frustrated by it. I had a real hard time with the film trying to force me to sympathize so much with Molly. Yeah, she's a complicated person. Uh, and, and I think we can maybe uh, – we're here, so let's get to it. We can kind of circle back to uh, Sorkin's complicated male feminism. Uh, I thought we would get to that first. But, yeah, let's let's talk about girl bosses. Uh, are you either of you familiar with this concept? I'm not. Um, so it's, you know, your Elizabeth Holmes types, uh, from Theranos, uh, potentially also your Sophia Amoruso's, the, uh, the person who, uh, the, the TV show Girl Boss is based on. Uh, I think I said her name wrong. I am sorry about that. Uh, and you know, th- these are varying levels of grifters. Not all of them are pure grifters. Uh, but it is this, this phenomenon of, a very capitalist feminism. You could even lump the Kardashians in here too, if you wanted to. Uh, I'm not going to because that feels like a loaded bag. Uh, I'm going to stick mostly to to pure business schemes. Uh, Is this weird? If I can win at patriarchy, then they they, they couldn't control me. Uh, And it is interesting, and I'm glad you brought up uh, Bombshell earlier, Arthur, because I didn't want to forget about it because I think that film has a similar problem uh, in that it is – working against itself to to try and paint a sympathetic picture of somebody that is not always sympathetic. And I I do think Sorkin uh, is much more, and and his team are are much more successful here in Molly's game uh, than the the weirdness that is Bombshell is. Uh, Choices are made in that film. Uh, And uh, I I will admit, exiting a press screening and shouting about the bad choices that it makes while uh, (laughs) uh, the, the, the person from the marketing company is actually trying to talk uh, to a, a local film reporter, <laughs> it's bad form, especially when it's a, a movie largely about uh, the sexual harassment of women, and it's a it's a, a female <laughs> film journalist is being interviewed. And you're some dipshit uh, with glasses and, and a beard. Yeah, look, uh, don't be me. Be better than me. We can all learn in, uh, from each other. But my point is, I've also never like you know made somebody go full tilt. And again, nobody makes an addict do anything. But also, I've I've never enabled a gambling addict into ruining their life. I do appreciate that the film questions how Molly feels about that, and she does kind of seem to feel awful about it. But at the same time, she is, admittedly, uh, by her own admission, trying to use uh, her her white ladiness to make sure this is definitely as legal as possible. Uh, and to give herself a, a certain amount of credibility, despite the fact she's paying all of her employees as uh, subcontractors, uh, meaning she's able to make way, 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 way more money than they are and doesn't have to obey right. any labor laws. So 
there you have it. Uh, that's my case uh, against Molly Bloom. I don't feel too committed to it. I am trying to not like. I, I hope I'm coming across as diplomatic as I want to be because I, I really this seems, she seems like an interesting person who's lived a damn life. Um, and again, anytime we're talking about a character in a film who's based on a real person, I do feel the need to uh, to be as you know gentle as possible and, and to try to. Uh, give everybody a fair shake, I guess. I think the movie does a fairly good job of convincing me that uh, she is a person who would have done anything else. Yeah, and would not have done this, but sort of fell into it. It, it It's a thing, it, it's because of the, well, the tragedy that happened while she was skiing, right? The sort of frozen stick that just happened to knock her ski off uh, in her big run and injure her. And enters her downhill uh, freestyle skiing career. Like, yeah, I get it. We don't all, we don't all always choose our day jobs. Yeah, and and so you know your circumstances sort of just dictate a thing, and and it goes on. I, I recently I was listening to uh, the Duncan Trussell uh, Family Hour podcast because I'm obsessed with Midnight Gospel, the television show. Uh, Midnight Gospel is very it good. Is, yeah, I like it a lot. We can we can talk about uh, Duncan Trussell and other complicated persons uh, measured uh, levels at another time. Uh, but man, Midnight Gospel is great. What was going on on uh, this episode of his podcast? So I, I listened to uh, his interview with Ashley Matthews, who is uh, probably better known uh, by some uh, as Riley Reed, uh, as uh, an adult film actress. And uh, she was talking about how she got into adult film acting. And what happened was she was in college, and she'd been gifted a car, and uh, she was of lower economic means, got into a car accident, and totaled her car. She was fine, but was unable to drive to school anymore. And... She found this way to make money and stayed in. That wasn't part of the plan. It's not who she was or anything like that, but it, it became the thing that she ended up doing, right? And uh, now I know it's not a one-to-one correlation or anything like that, but I'm, I'm saying that the movie does a pretty good job of saying, so here is a person, uh, of course, it's totally within bounds and totally legal to be part of the adult film industry. There's no, you know, but there is, there are certain social stigmas that get attached to it. So I, I think in a way there's a, there's a correlation at least to be drawn that what Molly Bloom's uh, backstory does for us is to say, so here's a person doing something marginal, something definitely on the other side, you know, it, it, it's sort of a squirrely area, um, a, a non-typical kind of lifestyle for sure that she's living by. And to say that it was again, sort of random chance that sort of, drove her there it was a random chance of the twig it was a random chance of finally getting hired as an assistant to this terrible real estate person who happened to also run this thing it was a random chance that she could pick up quickly that this kind of game could be played like this and to turn it into something by which she could make a profit that 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 randomness itself is a major part of it and randomness is how sorkin excuses i think molly uh for making some of the choices that she does I, I think certainly. I think it does really uh, f- forgive her, uh, and not in like a totally like morally objectionable right. way or anything, uh, or not fully, I guess. But yeah, because there is, I don't know. I, I, I maybe would have to revisit this film to fully decide, but there is a glimmer of this. But I, I totally see why Arthur is like frustrated by it. It's this insistence. Uh, again, it sucks to get uh, attacked by the mob. That's not good. And, and to be fair, like that's. That's shit. Like she wasn't even uh, working with those those folks, but uh, you know, <sighs> crime's crime, uh, and that's it's a weird thing that Molly seems to know pretty sure 
what she's doing is shady from the start and seem surprised when people start treating her like what she's doing yeah. is shady. Uh, which is not, again, I'm trying to toe a line here that is not, uh, I, I want to complicate this and problematize it because I think we need to, but there is certain amounts of this that are, you know, just not okay. Uh, obviously, but, but again, there, it is complicated, as you said, Dustin, and to circle back the thing that I can't decide how much the film knows it's doing though, her ultimate downfall is a moment or moments of hubris, right? Like she ends up in New York and ends up raising the stakes and getting herself in trouble and needing to take a rake on the game, which if you're not aware, uh, is, a, is an illegal percentage. It's when you're betting on the games you're running, um, uh, and fronting money, uh, essentially, as I understand it, it's complicated. They never really That's explain my understanding it. as well. Um, yeah, you, you're both taking out a loan and, and also staking that loan by like doing something with your own money. The books are cooked more or less or are cookable very easily. Uh, but again, she only ends up in this situation because she wants to prove Toby Maguire. I'm sorry, for legal reasons, player X, uh, played by Michael Sarah. <laughs> she wants to prove him wrong. And for the record, if player X is as big of a sociopath in real life as he is portrayed to be in this movie, you know seeing that the only reason Molly Bloom got into trouble is to prove what a, how wrong she, he was about her. Like, you know that gave him a, a giant uh, psychopath boner. Uh, again, that is assuming if player X is as bad as he's portrayed in this film for legal reasons, I'm not going to guess. Uh, but you know, that's, that's Sorkin's thing. Uh, so who knows, right? I, I, I'm, I'm going to assume everything that happens in this movie is just the screenplay. I'm, I'm, I didn't read enough into the story to know what's fact and fiction other than like some numbers have definitely been inflated for drama effect and things have been moved around, um, and characters have been invented, but yeah, it, it's, it's a weird call to hang so much on her drive for competitiveness that comes obviously, you know, is attributed much to her upbringing and bringing in this, this family of champions and winners she comes from and, uh, real hardy American stock. Uh, but, but yeah, we don't spend a whole lot of time on that. And Dustin, you kind of talked about the film's politics are being a little weird and wishy-washy as Sorkins often are. And maybe that is kind of the, the pin we come to is despite uh, the, the girl bossiness of it. Aaron Sorkin loves a champion. He loves people at the top of their field, uh, and is willing to forgive a lot of questionable behaviors to, to, to lionize people, uh, in those circles. Is that, I don't know. Do, does that, do I feel like, I feel like I'm I being so. fair, I but I think you're absolutely tell. being fair. Um, however, we need to talk about Kevin, uh, Kevin Costner. And. <laughs> Oh, you mean how Daddy shows up to solve all of her problems? Yeah, uh, and just give her some some straight man dope. Yeah, and how her uh -huh. problem is, you know, yeah. to, I mean, it, she's he gets pa like having your cake and eat it too is one of the things that you said earlier. And the three years of therapy and the three questions does exactly such that. an Aaron Sorkin, such an Aaron Sorkin device. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna cut the bullshit and we're gonna solve all of our problems here in this one conversation. Yeah, which yeah, which definitely feels like a screenplay contrivance. And I don't remember the middle uh, I would question. Be shocked to find out, or the answer. Uh, I'd be shocked to find out she stumbled across her dad in that situation. Yeah. And I don't remember the answer to the middle question in that situation, but it begins with "You like to control powerful men." First of all, like you know, you're you're. This is about me, you know, daddy issue, whatever mm -hmm. kind of thing. And uh, do you guys remember the second answer for the second question was? Ooh, I don't. I don't remember. 
Well, no, that you I don't either. Speaks to the film's power. I know, but the, I remember the answer to the third question, which is um, he did love her as much as her brothers. It's that he knew she knew, even though she didn't really intuitively know about his ongoing sort of philandering and affairs, and uh, sort of resented yeah. her for that. And it was it was his own resentment coming out and his own sort of self protectiveness or whatever. And so it's I don't know what. Yeah, it's all your problems are because I'm a bad dad. And I mean, look, okay, it's not necessarily – I feel like there is a little bit more nuance to the scene than that. That is a not totally inaccurate summation of it either. I don't think it's that uh, nuanced at all. No. and Well, all right. Well, thank you, Arthur, for backing me up a little bit and going a step further. Uh, Also, fucking like Molly is a cool and interesting character. For all the things I've said about her, like – Questioning how bad we should feel for her, uh, and, and whether or not this is a, a poor little rich girl situation, which I, again, I don't think it is. But not letting her have the agency to like solve these problems for herself or think through this shit for mm-hmm. herself is really weird. And when you combine that with the camera, and I know we have a, a female cinematographer working on this film, but we do have a male director, so we gotta talk about questions of the gaze. And yeah, I know looking hot was Molly's thing. But man, the fact that I know Aaron Sorkin's a boob guy uh, coming out of this movie is just not a good look for yeah. anybody, especially when you have your lead's daddy show up and solve all of her problems for her because she couldn't do it herself. It's it's a little fucked uh, to not put it to put it bluntly. <laughs> I read a very salty review of this movie uh, that was very humorous, but. Uh... I think it was that one in which it said, you know, the back third of this movie is just a bunch of different men telling Molly who Molly is. And I think that really, you know, hits at home what's what where this movie falls apart in that last hour, you know, or 45 minutes or so. Yeah. Uh, especially when Costner shows up and, and really uh, starts railroading it, I think. Um, well, and I'll go ahead and read Arthur. I also read an, uh, a review and, and this one's fairly positive. Uh, it's from Christy Lemire. Lemire, I... I don't know uh, how to say her last name, unfortunately, uh, but she wrote this for RogerEbert.com, and I just want to kind of give you yeah. guys the last paragraph of this. And it's 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 kind of where we're at. It was a very, uh, you know, like softly endorsing the film, like this is really good and entertaining if you can handle the sorkinness of it all. But but here we go. Here's how Christie closes it. But the through line for all these anecdotes is the strengthening relationship between Molly and her lawyer, the only person who can consistently match her in the rapid-fire dialogue department. Chastain and Elba have crackling chemistry from the start. You can practically feel the energy of them leaning into each other. Either you'll be able to give yourself over to Sorkin's heightened world or you won't, but the scenes between Chastain and Elba certainly make it easier. Sorry, I kept more of this final portion than I thought. Which makes it all the more jarring and unfortunate that both he and Costner's characters end up explaining Molly to Molly when she's at her lowest point. And again, Arthur, this yeah. might be the one that you are referencing. Yeah. Okay, uh, so I'm glad we, we both read this one. Uh, the scene with Costner is particularly contrived. The redemption it depicts is intended as a much-needed moment of catharsis, but it ends up feeling like smug mansplaining. Even the fear, ever the fiercest, com- fierce competitor, Molly has found a way to rule in a male-dominated world. If only Molly's game had let her win in the end on her own fascinating, complicated terms. And yeah, I, I, I'm right there with Christy on that, and uh, I'm, I'm glad we both read that one, Arthur. Uh and I don't know, maybe this is a good time uh, since we talked about girl bosses and we're kind of talking about uh, the film's sort of suspect feminist credentials. I'm going to bring up uh, the, the Bechdel cast, which is a podcast uh, that uses the uh, the Bechdel test rubric to talk about movies. You probably figured that out from the title. 
Uh, but it's hosted by uh, Caitlin Durante and uh, Jamie Loftus. Uh, Jamie Loftus is a comedian I'm a big fan of. She also did this one-woman show for a while called Girl, or I'm sorry, Boss, Whom is Girl, uh, where she played a, a, a fictional, you know, female startup founder. Um, so I, I'm, I'm bringing all this up because this is very much in, in Jamie Loftus's wheelhouse and is kind of of a piece with what we're talking about and have been talking about. Uh, but yeah, it's Sorkin's sort of like, I don't know, his struggle to understand Molly does lead him to put his damn foot in his mouth, as I'm desperately trying not to throughout this episode. It does. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a, exactly where I was trying to go, is that, that sort of tone deafness where you're doing something that's really kind of interesting and uh, trying to sort of help to see what's going on, uh, you know, in a, in a given set of situations where, uh, again, you, you mentioned the gaze, right, and the way in which uh, this uh, overall objectification mm. of uh, Molly's body. And he does a way in which he sort of addresses racism and the sort of, again, sort of white liberalisms and white feminism sort of sometimes erasure of it with the, with the bagel bag. Yeah. Idris Elba's line, Idris Elba's lines sound like they were written by a guy who, who, uh, went, went to a, a yeah. fancy school. I gotta be honest. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and I'm trying to say that as nice as I can. Uh, yeah, I, I, I totally hear what you're saying. And so, you know, sort of, we'll, we'll identify this kind of racism. See, sorry, gotcha, feminist lady. But it's like, I'm getting the feminist lady and now I'm gonna ogle her with the camera in a way that's super, super gazy. It, 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 yeah, and again, it's weird that it has Idris Elba mentioned the "you look like the Showtime version of yourself" line, oh, Cinemax and then she version, reiterates yeah. that Cinemax, yeah, and then she reiterates that comment within dialogue, uh, and that is like the first of many times this film doubles back on itself because of the intercutting timelines, and it does kind of feel like I don't know if it's a studio note or Sorkin like not editing enough or him wanting to make sure the audience is following it. But it doubles back on itself, and again, I just I kind of pivot back to the filmmaking just to make it sound like we're not dragging somebody for our own gratification. Uh, but yeah, it's the first of many times like the film just kind of falls over itself to articulate something it's already articulated. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, and, and with all these gaze problems, yeah, it's it's a big issue. I, I got off track, and I, I brought up the Bechdel cast to uh, deploy the Bechdel test, uh, and the film does make a point of saying. Molly don't got no friends, uh, and that's why she's never in a room with a woman. But I don't know. She got a mom. Uh, she does get a, a fun scene with comedian Megan Nuringer, uh, who plays her uh, her card dealer. Uh, I like a lot. But I don't know. I could have used more of that relationship because having a character who's like, hey, I can get you in more trouble if you want to, but also I am trying to, like, help you stay safe. I don't know. That's an interesting dynamic, and I, I could have used more of that, and we get, I don't know, barely enough of it. Uh, I think, does anybody, I, I have something I'd, I'd like to close on unless we have any uh, other places we want to go. I don't have any big stuff to go with. So yeah, go ahead and drop it on us. Okay. Well, let's, I, I think we should close by being nice. Uh, I, I think we've kind of taken the film to task throughout this episode and uh, I alluded to this earlier, but yeah, let's, let's talk about something Sorkin does get right. Uh, and it is the behavior from men that Molly Bloom is constantly being forced to tolerate. Uh, and, and is a big part of why she doesn't want, uh, her, her, you know, her personal emails and stuff, uh, getting out, uh, in any of these depositions and court hearings. It, it is really nothing to do with protecting these powerful men who have been gross to her. It is more just protecting like, nah, man, I'm a straight up person. If I say I'm going to be seek, uh, you know, keep a secret, I'm going to do it. If I'm going to be your shady, uh, gambling enabler, I'm going to be good at it. And I, I kind of respect that. Uh, it's a weird 
judgment call for somebody to make, but it's kind of interesting. And again, we do see this behavior and the film never seems super sympathetic to it. Even Chris O'Dowd's drunk, uh, babbling, uh, always saying things that sound like the titles of a noir thriller, uh, which is a great recurring. It's very bit. funny. Uh, but it, he is not shown with like, you know, tenderness or empathy. He is shown to be a lout and irritating. Michael Sarah's character, Player X, is shown to be a full-blown sociopath. Uh, Dean Keith is a racist and a misogynist, so on and so forth. Uh, you know, uh, Bill Camp's character, uh, Harlan Eustace, the very good gambler, is the only one amongst these people who's decent and, you know, ends up blowing up his wife's, blowing off his wife's birthday party because he's on a gambling bender. Um, so the behavior of men, uh, and the ways in which it, it kind of shockwaves out and impacts women due to, uh, a general lack of care, uh, is interesting. And I think well observed by the movie and, and something, you know, would be, especially with as hard as we've been, I don't know, golf clap. That's yeah. good shit. It's interesting. I mean, I do think there's a way in which the film is aware of, and the writing has done this, that, Women have to deal with a lot of stuff just to make it and uh, to sort of give us the sense of suffering under that. And Well, and again, but I think it understands kind of like the boring day-to-day mo- emotional labor uh, men just sort of expe- expect the women around yeah. them to do. Like it, it does seem to have, at least have an understanding of that like lived nuance that uh, for all of the, the criticisms we throw in about his ability to write this character – I think that's something that about her presume, presumable experience that, I don't know, seems good or at least well attempted, if nothing yeah. else. I don't, I don't know. I, I still think it's just kind of hitting the bare minimum of what it should be trying to do anyway. Interesting. Right. I mean, th- that's the kind of the core conflict of the movie is her rise up against these, these men of type. And so if that's not present in the film, then I mean, it's automatically a failure. That's a fair point. Yeah, you're right. I guess I think it is kind of the bare minimum with this, with this plot. Well, yeah. I think, I, I, I think I you're know. right, Arthur, because hey, you know no, the movie is about you... lots of things. Like if it was a movie just about that, I think it would have taken it on, but it's also about daddy issues. It's also about gambling. It's yeah. also about mobs. It's also about the legal system. And so that, that sort of confused the, hedge, the hedge fund, fund people. people that confused thematics is part of why we just get a little taste of that and then we move on to something else. Yeah. You know, it's almost like if Aaron Sorkin had just made a movie about like, oh, I don't know, like one theme. It's it's like if there's one theme that you can generally use as a through line for most stories of this ilk. Uh, what is it? Oh, oh, it's on the tip of my – oh, class. It's almost as if he had bothered to make a movie about class. You know, he might have gotten at something. Uh, it would have given him a through line to kind of connect all these disparate – uh, boxes he wanted to play in. Um, but, uh, and I think that's the failure of Molly Bloom as a, a character. I think taking a character of privilege and putting her into a spotlight of privilege only to try to have us sympathize with her losing her money is that failure of class. I, I think this kind of story works better with taking somebody, a, a kind of rags to riches or someone done wrong by the system. And I think the, failure of white collar and the failure of interest in white collar, unless you're just giving over to the hedonism of it, of, you know, Wolf of Wall Street. And this kind of goes back to my issues with trying to sympathize with Molly Bloom. I don't care about her story because she's of privilege. I mean, this world-class athlete isn't scraping pennies by to travel. She's not going to be going to some JUCO to get her law degree. And it's hard to really sympathize, I think, with that at the end of the movie. 
And I think that's where it fails and drops that thread of class. I think you're totally right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, that's a very fair criticism. Yeah. And again, the film tries to be critical of Molly and there, I think that's part of the reason it cannot come up to a, a central cohesive complaint. And again, you know, we do have Charlie pay lip service to that. But again, as, as you said, Arthur, that's kind of the bare minimum. And it is kind of, she talks about it all the time. She talks about how rich these dudes she, she's, uh, you know, uh, organizing these games for are. It's a huge part of it. Um, and, and to kind of only hint at like these weird interconnected webs of global wealth, uh, that immediately go to the mob when cash is involved. Yeah. It's, it, there's more here that could be done. Um, it's time. We're done. There, let's put a pin I'm in good. this. We good? All right. Yeah. Let's, uh, how do we feel? I'm stealing Dustin's job once again. Uh, this is the part <laughs> of the show where we say shelf or trash, Elser instead. How do we feel about this damn motion picture? We're going to get completely wild. Dustin, let's start with you. Is this an essential watch, uh, or, you know, is it skippable? Uh, skip. No. Pass. Trash. Done. Arthur. I, I second that. I think this is trash. I'm right there with you. I, I like Sorkin well enough, but uh, it's on streaming right now, which is a great place for it to live, but you don't need to make uh, any hurry to put it into your eyeballs. Uh, look, we got plenty of time to watch movies right now. Catch up on something. Uh, it feels a little bit more essential. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I hear we're going to do another movie. Is that true, Arthur? Yeah, it is. And I think I'm going to keep this theme of Oscar bait uh awards contender going next week when we take a look at the 2003 movie uh League of Extraordinary Gentlemen uh starring Sean Connery. <laughs> nice. uh, oh. uh, if you've never if you've never caught up with it it is streaming on Hulu currently, I believe, so go give that a watch. Uh it's you know, hopefully going to be a good time. Speaking of last, you know, uh Kevin Costner being the connection between last week's episode and this uh, Prince of Thieves, a movie truly of its decade. Uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is a film of its decade if ever there were one. Uh, At least li- the early odds, yeah. Oh, buddy, yeah. Listener, what are your favorite forgotten uh, and maligned action films of the early odds? Arthur and I both have a lot of love for LXG, and we're going to talk about it. Uh, what do you like? What do you think is stupid? What do you love because it's stupid? Tell us. Uh, we're on Twitter at good underscore trash. That's about the only social media uh, we really do much of. But, you know, we're on the other ones. You can find us. Uh, if you got long form feedback, if you really need to pour your heart and soul out, or if we totally uh, stepped in it this week and said some dumb shit we need to correct, uh, that's Whoop, almost burped while I was telling you how to tell us we were being so gross. That's good gross. Bradley Whitford uh, it's good Bradley trash. <laughs> there you you know it. Look, when you talk fat, I'm trying to do it like Sorkin would do it. I want to get this clean. It's good trash genrecast at gmail.com if you want to send us a long ass email. Uh, we would love to read them. We, we like that kind of stuff. Uh, you've listened to a podcast, rate, review, subscribe. That's how people get in the algorithm. I, I don't know. That's how the NSA downloads our, our brains for digital heaven. <laughs> Something. Uh, if you like the show enough, you could just tell somebody you like about it. Uh, podcasts are a great way to get through this weird time we're all living in. Uh, if you have some extra money lying around right now, uh, we're over at good trash, uh, or patreon.com forward slash GTM. As I mentioned, you can hear us play tabletop, but as also mentioned, it's a weird time. So no pressure. That's not a big deal. That's it. That's what you need to know about this show. That isn't what movie we're going to watch next week. Alrighty. Well, there you go, dear listener. So leave extraordinary gentlemen is next. You keep watching. We'll keep talking and we'll see you all next time.